Have you ever felt like God is a million miles away? That your prayers are to no avail? That there's radio silence between you and the Almighty? Horatio Spafford was a man who knew about the difficulty and the pain of life. He was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost a fortune in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Around the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking that a vacation would do the family some good, he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he had finished some pressing business at home. However, when crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sunk. More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio's precious daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England, and at one point during the voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. One can only imagine the intense pain in his soul as he stared into the icy depths where his children had perished. Psalm 42 is written for this type of situation. It is a psalm for dark days, for individuals who feel as though their God has forgotten them. If you are suffering this morning, if you feel as though your prayers only go as far as the ceiling, I hope that you will engage with the words of the psalmist to find hope. If you say, well, this doesn't really apply to my current situation, I'd encourage you to still engage with the text this morning. The book of James tells us that trials and testings are a certainty. If this psalm isn't for you now, chances are that you will need it at some point. <laughs> right? And so this morning we are going to look at Psalm 42 a psalm for dark days. But before we get into the text of Scripture, let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into your word and to study it today. Uh, this is a psalm that we either have needed, do need, or will need at some point. And I pray that as we work through this psalm this morning, as we attempt to discover the lesson that you have intended for us, that you would be with us, Pray that you would help me, give me the strength and the grace that I need to be able to preach and rightfully divide the word of truth. I pray that you would help all of us as we listen and engage with the text to be encouraged, to find our strength in you, and to be reminded that our hope is found in God. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. Let me give you a quick overview of Psalm 42. Um, the Psalms are written as the hymn book or the hymnal of ancient Israel. And so Psalm 42, if you look in the title, it says, To the chief musician, a maskeel for the, song, for the sons of Korah. A maskeel there is a song of wisdom. So its purpose is to instruct us and to drive deep within our soul a lesson that we need to learn. And so what we're going to do as we walk through this, we're going to find what is the lesson that the psalmist is intending for us to learn. What do we need to take and internalize and drive deep into our hearts? Because the psalm is written as a hymn, it has three components. It has two verses and a chorus. 
So verse 1, the psalmist's struggle, is found in verses 1 through 4. Verse 2, the psalmist's resolve, is found in verses 6 through 10. And we see the chorus in verses 5 and 11. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. So let's look first at the psalmist's struggle. This is verses 1 through 4. It says this, As the hart or the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I had went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. I see four, four things here that our psalmist is struggling with. In verse 1, he is struggling with desperation. He says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. If you're familiar with the song, um, as the deer, right? It says, as the deer panted for the water, so my soul longeth after you. I don't know what it was about that song, but I always had kind of like a romantic picture in my head about that song, like a deer in a nice forest coming and taking a sip out of a nice, like clean pool of water that is there. That is not the picture that the psalmist is trying to get across. The picture here is a picture of a deer dying of thirst in the desert. <laughs> During the dry season in Israel, there would be Brooks that had been full from rain. So in the, in the wet season, the time of planting, there would be mountain runoff that would come down and there were brooks that would fill with water and there would be rivers that would flow. But during the harvest time, during the dry season, those waters would dry up and where before there was a river, now there is merely a trickle. And so the psalmist is saying, look, this is a deer that is going from where there was a river and now there is nothing. And he's going from place to place, attempting to find water, attempting to find something to give him relief from his thirst. This is a desperate animal, one who has to find relief. And then the psalmist compares that to himself. He says, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. This is an ongoing condition. And the psalmist feels as though there is no end in sight. So he struggles with desperation. In verse 2, he struggles with remoteness. He says, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is empty. He is looking for God, and yet God is nowhere to be found. Where is he? he says, when will I come and present myself before God? Because of his exile, because of his situation, he feels as though there is no access into God's presence. He desires to commune with the living God, the God of creation, the God who gives and sustains life. He needs this God to restore him and to free him from his despair. He wants to come and he wants to present himself before God. This is a man who is dried up, beaten down, desperate, and longing for renewed, sustained fellowship with the God who revives restores and gives life. In verse 3, we see that the struggle is not merely internal, but that there is external oppression as well. He says, my tears have been my meat day and night. There are opponents here who have been tormenting him. He says, they say unto me, where is thy God? Now, one aspect of the Psalms is their brevity, right? So the, psalm, the psalmist try to pack as much in as possible into the fewest amount of words as possible. 
And so when they say, where is thy God? There is certainly more that is being said about God than just this. But he's summing up all of their attacks into one phrase. Where is your God? So his opponents are tormenting him. They're looking at his situation and wondering if he has lost favor with God. They're challenging God's sovereignty and his providence. And they are doing so with seeming impunity. This is breaking the heart of the psalmist because the character of God is being assassinated and seemingly without consequence. He longs to see God show himself strong once again. And finally, we see that he is struggling with isolation. The psalmist is pained when he considers his inability to worship corporately with his fellow Israelites. And if there's one thing I think the last few months have taught all of us, is given us a renewed appreciation for the ability to worship corporately together and to come together and to fellowship together. But the psalmist here doesn't have that option. He says, I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. And probably what he's considering here is the Passover celebration when Jews from all 12 tribes would flock together. And they would undergo purification rites and they would celebrate and feast and worship together. And that was a precious and a special time, but now the psalmist is alone. And he finds himself agonizing. He says, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. He is agonizing when he considers his current situation. So verse 1 takes our psalmist to a very dark place place. He is desperate for a word from God. He is removed from a place of close communion. He's oppressed by enemies who assassinate God's character, and he is isolated from his fellow worshipers. And the question is, can God work in a situation like this one? Where is God? And I think that verse 2 of this hymn is very instructive because it is here that we see the psalmist resolve. So look down with me. Skip verse 5 for right now. Look down with me in verse 6. He says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and from the Hermonites and from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet... The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with thee, and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, where is thy God? Notice first that his struggle is still very present and real. In verses 6 and 7, he is struggling with this internal conversation of doubt, right? And so he's wrestling with his own emotions. He's wrestling with his own will. His soul is speaking against him. He is depressed. He says, my soul is cast down. He is physically distant from God's presence. When he says, I will remember thee from the land of Jordan and from the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar, he is removed from the temple and from the place of worship and and from corporate fellowship with his brothers. And so he is depressed. He's physically distant. He also feels crushed 
underneath the weight of his current situation. Look at verse 7. It says, Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. He's talking about a waterfall here. He says, All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. I'll never forget the first time that I visited Niagara Falls. Has anybody here, anybody been to Niagara Falls? Up, up north? Okay. So <clears throat> Niagara Falls is, is pretty incredible. So it's one of the world's largest, one of the world's largest waterfalls. It's one of the, the most impressive sights that I've ever seen in person. I mean, it is phenomenal to see up close. You can hear the falls from over a mile away, and during peak season, more than 700,000 gallons of water pour over the falls every second. 700,000 gallons of water a second. I mean, it is, it is extraordinary to see. And they have, a, they have a ferry service there called the Maid of the Mist. And you can hop on the ferry and you can get up close. And when you get up close, you can be talking to the person next to you and you can't hear them speak, right? So like if we're talking and it would just look like I was mouthing words to you. It is so loud you can't hear anything. And the mist is so intense that you get off the ferry and you're soaked, right? Even though you get like less than a quarter of a mile close. It's amazing. The sheer volume of water is overwhelming and breathtaking. And this is the picture that the psalmist uses here to express the intensity of the struggle that he is feeling. He says, it's like I'm at the bottom of Niagara Falls being crushed by that sheer weight and volume of water. And we're struggling to the surface and we're gasping for air and we're fighting, right? We are fighting to come again into the presence of God. He's struggling while the crushing weight of his burden threatens to drown him. That's the internal conversation of doubt. And yet also look at verse 9 and 10. He still is struggling as well with the external oppression of his enemies. He says, why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And his enemy's assassination of God's character feels like a fatal wound. He says, it's with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me. He says, when they are attacking God's character, it's like I'm being stabbed in the ribs, right? It is painful. It's fatal. But even though we see that his struggle is still present and real, we also see that his God is still in control. And the way that he constructs this second verse is he builds the internal struggle and the external struggle around verse number eight. And so verse number eight is really the highlight, the focus of this second verse. And it says in verse eight, yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with thee, and my prayer unto the God of my life. God is still in control. God's, present is, God's presence is constant. He talks about how he will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and that in the night his song will be with him. So his presence is constant. He is always there. This brings to mind Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Where the author of Hebrews says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God's presence is constant. And he is always with us. And he is always working on our behalf. If you look at verse 9, the psalmist makes the statement, I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? This is an exaggeration, Right? We know that God never forgets us. God never forgets his children. And he is always in control. These are the words of a man who is in pain, right? 
And we know that people in pain often make statements that they otherwise wouldn't make. And that's the case of the psalmist here. He's a man who is struggling. He is a man who is hurting, and he makes an overly exaggerated comment. He says, God, why have you forgotten me? Well, we know that God doesn't forget us. So how do we handle, right? How do we handle such a statement when he says, God, why have you forgotten me? How do we deal with that? How do we address that? Well, Job was a man in such a predicament, was he not? And we think about in Job chapter 1 and 2, the attack of Satan on Job had cost him his possessions, his family, and his wife had come to him and instructed him, curse God and die, right? This is a man at rock bottom. This is the predicament of Job. To make matters worse, starting in verse four or chapter 4, his friends had come to him, and, and his friend Eliphaz starts speaking in verse 4, and he rebukes Job because he assumes that God is dealing with a sin problem in Job's life. And, and we can only imagine like the, the, the sheer breadth of Job's emotions here, right? His friends have come to comfort him, and instead they start rebuking him because they say, you have a sin issue that you need to fix. Otherwise, God wouldn't be doing this to you. And Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong, right? And his words in chapter 6, and Job chapter 6 and verse 26 are instructive for us. It says, do ye imagine to reprove words? And the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as wind? The point is, don't spend time and energy correcting such words. They're going to be blown away of themselves on the wind. There's no root to comments like these. When we have friends or we have family members who are hurting, we have to discern whether the words that are spoken either against us or against God are merely for the wind. Spoken not from the soul, but from the place of pain and the place of hurt. We need to be careful when we have friends who are hurting, when we have family members who are hurting, and sometimes people say things that they don't mean. And this is the psalmist here. And we see him come back to a place of faith and we see him come back to a place of where he reaffirms the sovereignty of God. But here he says, God, why have you forgotten me? But we have to look at this and say, this is just words for the wind, right? They're words for the wind. And it's instructive for us when we have friends or family members who say hurtful things against us, or we say things and we're like, ooh, man. We have to discern, is it from the soul? Is there actually a heart issue? Or is it just words from the wind, things that will blow away on their own as our friends or family members come back to a place of faith and reaffirming the sovereignty and the grace of God. So we see first, right? We see that God's presence is constant. But secondly, we see that God's character is steadfast. God's character is steadfast. He says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. That word loving kindness is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it's the word hesed. Having entered a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act on their behalf in certain ways. And he is utterly faithful to that self-commitment. Do you remember the story in Genesis chapter 15? God and Abraham are going to make a covenant to one another. And so Abraham goes and he makes the preparations for the covenant. And, and in those days, what they would do is they would take animals, uh, they would take sacrifices, and what they would do is they would cut them in half. And they would line up the carcasses and they would make a walkway. And what that would do is it would indicate the seriousness of the promises that those two individuals were about to engage into together. And then those individuals, they would come, they would stand shoulder to shoulder, and they would walk through 
that line of carcasses together and they would engage in covenant promises with each other. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, something incredibly unique happens. Abraham prepares that covenant walk, right? So he takes it, he lines it out, and it is ready. And then God puts Abraham to sleep. And in the evening time, God, as a pillar of fire, walks through that line of carcasses alone. And so what he does is God makes covenant promises, not with Abraham. He makes covenant promises to Abraham. So that the blessing and the grace and the goodness of God is not rooted in anything that Abraham has done. So Abraham goes to sleep and God says, look, this covenant promises that I am making are not about you. And he walks through that on his own and he says, my covenant with you is based on my goodness and my character alone. And that is the word hesed. And so when God says that he is going to command his loving kindness in the daytime, he is saying that his goodness, his covenant faithfulness is rooted in his character alone. This is a word that highlights God's loyalty, his faithfulness, his commitment, and his enduring love for his people. It is dependent on God's character and God's grace alone. And I'm glad that there's nothing that you and I can do to earn the grace and favor of God. Because if it was up to us, we'd be in trouble. But it is solely rooted in God himself. And in his faithfulness and in his covenant loyalty. So we've seen the psalmist agonize through his struggle in verse 1. And we just experienced the realignment of his perspective in verse 2. So he's reminded of and he focuses on the steadfast character of God. And the question then is what is he to do? And it's here that we transition to the chorus. So look with me quickly at verse 11. He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Notice here, notice the internal conversation that he's having. He's talking to himself, right? He's not talking to anybody else. This is an internal conversation. He's talking to his own soul. It's the internal conversation of doubt. He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? He is not blaming the external events around him for his despair, His soul is doing this work on its own. This is an individual whose emotions are deceiving him and leading him to a place of depression and doubt. And too often we look at the world around us and we say the problem is out there, but in reality the problem is in here. (laughs) And the psalmist says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And then he says, why art thou disquieted within me? Literally, The idea here is that his own heart is murmuring and speaking discouraging words against himself. And he commands himself to hope in God. That verb there, hope, it is an imperative. That means it's a command. We must do this. Hoping in God is not optional, right? It's not something that we can pick and choose to do. It is a command. We must hope in God. But this hoping is God-enabled. I'm going to give you a quick Hebrew lesson, all right? 
Good. Only like half of your eyes glazed over. Awesome. Okay. So quick Hebrew lesson. All right. So the, the, the verb stem that is used here in the Hebrew, it's called the hafil stem. And what it means is it means that the subject and the object are working together to bring the verb to completion. And so if we look at this and we say hope in God, who is the subject? We're talking to ourselves, right? So we, we are the subject, okay? Understood you. So if I was reading this to myself, I would say James, hope in God. James is the subject. Who is the object? Who am I hoping in? God. So the way that this verb is constructed is the subject, me, and the object, God, are working together to bring that hope to completion. So your hoping in God is not completely dependent on you. As you fight for hope in God in the midst of your difficulty, as you fight for faith in the midst of your circumstances, God is actively working in you and for you to bring that hope to completion. And that is an encouraging thought. That this is not completely dependent on us. God is actively at work on our behalf to bring this to pass. Your ability to hope in difficult times isn't dependent solely on you. God is fighting for and working in you even as you agonize over the reality of his presence in your life. This brings to mind the familiar poem. I'm sure that most of you have heard it, Footprints in the Sand. And it goes like this. One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with the Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one belonging to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest of times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never ever during your trials and testing when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Yeah. And when we struggle to find the reality of God's presence, when we agonize with the internal conversations of doubt, we are commanded to fight for faith, hope in God. But as we do that, understand that God is actively working on your behalf to bring that hope and to bring that faith to completion. This brings back to my Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is our responsibility, a command to work out our own salvation. But how can we accomplish that? Can I work out my own salvation? No, not on my own. Can I hope in God? No, not on my own. So how can we do it? It is God which worketh in you, 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And as we fight for faith, as we fight for hope, God is fighting for us as well. And together, as we work together, <laughs> we can hope in God as we are commanded to here. I also think we need to discuss quickly the, the nature of hope. If this is something that God has commanded us to do, what does it mean for us to hope in God? Well, normally we use the word hope as a desire for something good in the future, right? So if my wife is out running errands and I say, I hope that Angela brings me back an iced caramel latte from Dunkin' Donuts, right? That is uncertain. There is no, there is no certainty that that will come to completion, right? But I hope, I hope that she brings me home a coffee. But when we use the word hope, it usually expresses a level of uncertainty and not certainty. But biblical hope is different. When we are commanded to hope in God, it is grounded in the character of God himself. I define hope simply, simply as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Or even more simply put, hope is faith in the future tense. So when I teach children, I define faith very simply as taking God at his word and acting upon it. And when we consider the idea of hope, hope is taking God at his word and acting upon it, not in my present day situation, but looking out into the future and acting in a certain way now because I know who God is and what he has said, and I am confident that he will bring it to pass. That is biblical hope. Hope is Joshua and the nation of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho. And on the seventh day, after they had marched around the walls seven times, Joshua said, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the walls of Jericho fell down. Hope is Jonathan saying to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And God delivered the garrison of the Philistines into his hand. Hope is Daniel obeying God. And after being saved in the den of lions, proclaiming before a pagan king, my God hath sent his angel and has shut the lions' mouths and they have not hurt me. And the text says that no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in God. Hope is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And they walked with the Son of God in the depths of the fiery furnace. Hope is Paul proclaiming to Timothy, his son in the faith, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hope is seen in men like J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who stated, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Whoa. <laughs> Just preach, preach the lights out. Woo. All right. Sorry. Hope recognizes and internalizes the reality that there is coming a day when we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
When God's word says hope in God, it doesn't mean cross your fingers. <laughs> it means, to use the words of the missionary William Carey, to expect great things from God. So what is the heart response of hope? The heart response of hope is praise. He says, why art thou cast down on my soul and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God for, because I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Notice that this is a bittersweet conclusion. The psalmist is resting in the reality of God's character. He is engaging in God-enabled hope, but the reality of his situation has not changed. The psalm doesn't function like a romantic comedy, right? So it's not like at the end everything is fixed and everybody's happy. The reality of his present situation is still there. We leave the psalmist still enduring the, the pain, the loneliness, and the separation that he experiences throughout the psalm. So how then can he praise God? I believe that the simple answer is that his focus has been recalibrated. He's moved his focus from himself and he has placed it back on his God. His soul has been reaffirmed with the reality of God's character. His fight for grace has been divinely strengthened to allow him to exhibit faith in the future. Praise comes out of pain when we are God-focused and we have our hope firmly grounded and rooted in the character and in the promises of God. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect or complete, wanting nothing. We count our pain as joy because we can rest in the reality that God is working his plan in and through us. Paul and Silas, I think, are the perfect example of praise in the midst of pain. We turn to Acts chapter 16 and we read the account of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. So they are taken, they are beaten unjustly, they are thrown into prison, and what is their response? It says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, and they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Their focus was God-centered. And as a result, God sent an earthquake. And because of Paul and Silas's God-centeredness in the midst of suffering, an entire household is redeemed and they come to Christ. Psalm 42 is a, is it a, is it a, it is a deep hymn, a true mesquil, right? So what then is the lesson that we are to learn? What's the instruction of this hymn that we are to internalize and to work deep into our soul? If we were to boil down this psalm to one big idea, to one sentence, I think it would be this. Believers must fight for hope in God, even in the midst of difficulty and doubt. Believers must fight for hope in God, even in the midst of difficulty and doubt. How then are we to do this? 
How can we be, as James states, not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of it? The word of God has to change the way that we live today, right? It has to affect our Monday to Friday, nine to five. So when you go to work tomorrow, how does the reality of the truth in Psalm 42, how does that impact the way that we live today? Let me give you three suggestions. First, I think we need to reaffirm our belief in God's sovereignty and his character. Reaffirm your belief in God's sovereignty and his character. In verse 8, he says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with thee. Notice also in verse 7, I think this is interesting. He says, Deep calls them to deep with the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Even in the midst of this crushing internal doubt that he is feeling, he never loses sight of whose waves and whose billows and of whose water spouts they are. They are God's. And God is sovereign and he is in control. And God's sovereignty means that he can rule in the way that he sees fit. And we have to submit ourselves and we have to reaffirm our belief in the character and in the sovereignty of God. And I think that this is why he says in verse 9, I will say unto God my rock. As he is struggling to keep his boat afloat in the storms of life, even as they are threatening to capsize him, he is running to the immovability of God. Right? He's in his little lifeboat and he is clinging to the rock, to the immovable rock. And God will keep us from capsizing in the midst of doubt and discouragement and depression. Notice also that this is rooted in fact and not feeling. Our feelings can deceive us. He says multiple times, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, they can deceive us. But God's word and God's character are true and they are unchanging. Trust in the truth. Reaffirm your belief in the character and in the sovereignty of God. Second, we need to preach to our own souls. We need to preach to our own souls. We must learn how to speak the truth to ourselves, to internalize it deep in our hearts. We have to take what we know in our heads and we have to work it down and we have to massage it deep into our hearts and into our souls. Because the gospel is not just for our salvation. The gospel is for our sanctification and it is for our future glorification. And if we are going to hope in God, the gospel needs to be real to us and it needs to be making a difference in our everyday life. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition of this text says, have you realized that Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. So take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's, Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man, the psalmist, his treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, 
he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. End quote. Believers on this side of the cross know the chief cause of our hope, our future faith. It is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ and it is triumph over sin and death. It is focused on our glorification and our future communion with God, our rock, for all eternity. The main thing that we, learn to do, that we need to learn to do now is to take that truth that we know and to work it from our head to our hearts. Do you want to see what an example of this looks like in Scripture? Alan read it earlier, but let's, let's flip back to Romans chapter 8. Okay, and let's look at it here in Romans chapter 8. This is what it looks like to allow the gospel to work itself deep into our hearts. To take it from our head and to work it into our souls. Paul says in verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good. That means that God is working Christ-likeness in us. The trials of our faith worketh patience. God is actively working for you and in you in the midst of your struggle. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. And whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he glorified. This is the gospel in action. In theological terms, you want a fancy theological term? We call this the golden chain of salvation, okay? In Romans 8, 29, and 30. And this is the gospel. Now, how does the gospel affect the way that we live? Look in verse 31. How, what shall we say then to these things? Okay, that these things, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, he says there's, or verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation, right? And at the end of chapter 7, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? He is struggling in his spiritual walk. And he comes to verse 31 and he says, what shall we say then to these things? What do I need to speak to myself? What is the message that I need to preach into my own soul? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 39. Neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We need to take what we know, we need to work it into our souls. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Speak the truth into your own life and walk in hope. And finally, passionately pursue your God. If you flip back to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. So we've seen that we need to 
reaffirm our belief in God's sovereignty and his character. We've seen that we need to preach to our own soul. And finally, we need to passionately pursue our God. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Notice that the psalmist is not primarily praying for escape from his enemies or relief from his circumstances. Not that those are bad things. And we see in other psalms that the psalmists do pray for those. Right? So there is a time that is appropriate and is necessary and it is good for us to do that. But in this psalm of instruction, he's, this is not his primary prayer. He's not praying for relief from his enemies. He's not praying uh, he's not praying for um, relief from his circumstances. What the psalmist desires most is God himself. And this is the chief end of reaffirming our hope in God. God himself. We want to see God. We want to commune with him. And we want to be satisfied in admiring and adoring and exalting our God. The living God. Don't pull away because of your pain. Lean in, pursue Christ, and allow God to work in you and help you deepen your faith and reveal himself and his character. Passionately pursue your God. We left Horatio Spafford on the deck of his ship looking into the icy tomb where his four beautiful daughters had perished in that tragic shipwreck. And as he stood and contemplated, he pulled out a pen and he began to write. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This, friends, is what it means to hope in God. Faith for the future. Preaching the truth to ourselves. Reaffirming the character and the sovereignty of Almighty God. I don't know your situation this morning but I do know your God fight for faith in him passionately pursue him hope in God Father thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word this morning this is a difficult text a challenging text it requires us to have faith and to fight for grace and hope in the midst of difficulty. 
and I, I don't know the situation of everyone here, but I do know that you have promised that as we fight for hope in you, that you will work in us and you will work through us to bring that hope to completion. As fledgling and as fleeting and as, as minuscule as it may be, we know that you will help us to grow and to increase our hope in God. And Father, I pray that if there is one this morning who is struggling, who is just dealing with difficulty or dealing with dark times or is struggling to feel the reality of your presence, I pray that you would help them to take the truth that we have discussed this morning to massage it deep into their hearts and deep into their souls. And I pray that you would help them to hope in God. We ask these things in your name. Amen. In just a second, the piano is going to play. And uh, we'll just play a verse or two. And if the Holy Spirit, if you need encouragement this morning, if the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and in your life, let me encourage you. The front is open, but you don't need to come to the front. I understand that this is an intensely personal psalm. And so if the Lord has challenged you, encouraged you, convicted you, I'd encourage you just pray in your seat. But if the Lord has worked in your heart this morning, do business with God. As the piano plays, spend time communing with God and reaffirm your hope in him.